When Chelsea signed Fernando Torres from Liverpool in 2011, they believed they'd signed a superstar. £50 million, a British transfer record, seemed a snip for a player prolific in four consecutive Premier League seasons. Money well spent. In 110 games for Chelsea, though, spanning five arduous years, Torres notched just 20 times. That's £2.5 million per goal. The truth is, we just don't know when a player will fail to live up to their billing, when they will flop. And I suppose that's why we love the transfer market. Today, we home in on those who promised much and delivered little. 11 Premier League transfer flops of the past few decades. Arthur, hello. Hello, Ben. Very excited to be here on episode 11 of the 11. (laughs) We've made it to this landmark. What a time to be alive. Very exciting. Um, It's a good 11 to discuss today. I think there's a lot of interesting options for this transfer flops 11. You can get in touch with us to let us know your thoughts at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. Kicking this 11 off between the sticks, Ben, who have you chosen? (laughs) Yeah, I've gone for a goalkeeper who hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons in the early noughties. Um, I don't know whether you'll have heard of this name, Arthur. Stefan Postma. Slightly rings a bell. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he has a certain degree of nostalgia. But like like I say, he was very much a headline maker for the wrong reasons. He, uh, He signed for Aston Villa for 1.5 million in 2002. uh, And he was seen as the long-term replacement for Peter Schmeichel. And 1.5 million back in 2002 was a fair amount of money for a goalkeeper. Um, But it was felt that Villa was signing a Dutch keeper with lots of promise. Uh, He'd already made 100 appearances in the Dutch top flight and he was just 24 years old, um, which obviously for a keeper is, is pretty young. He ended up, though, as second-choice goalkeeper at Villa behind Peter Enkelman, um, which says a lot about his displays, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Thomas Sorensen, who, of course, would go on to play for, for Stoke. So Posma was was really restricted in the amount of game time he got. Um, he described David O'Leary as stamping on his heart when he was dropped after a game at Arsenal where they lost 3-1. He sounds like quite an emotional character. Absolutely. I think goalkeepers need to be emotional, though, because they're marshalling the defence and they're, they're quite vocal characters. So in keeping with, uh, with how goalkeepers should be. For sure. Um, as I said, Stefan, uh, his career took an unfortunate twist in 2006 um, when unfortunately he became embroiled in a sex scandal um, with his ex-girlfriend. Um, she posted some revenge porn, essentially, on YouTube um, and unfortunately, before he managed to to get it off the internet, it, it had spread. Um, he, in fact, tried to buy it himself on eBay <laughs> in order to keep it from other people. Um, so I, I do actually really feel for him. It's, it's a horrible situation to be in. I mean, that's that's incredibly cruel um, and malicious. But um, unfortunately, that somewhat tainted his career. And whilst he didn't become a laughing stock, certainly it it meant that he was making the headlines for the wrong reasons. As I say, he wasn't having much joy at Villa, so he left in the end for Wolves, um, a Midlands rival, where he had an okay loan spell, um, but eventually he did have to move back to Holland. He had a spell back at De Graaf Sharp, but he didn't play a single game in the Dutch top flight, and before a 65-game spell at Agov Appeldorn in the lower leagues um, of, of Dutch football. So... Things went spectacularly downhill for Stefan. And I think that £1.5 million transfer certainly was a flop of the early noughties. It speaks volumes about his career that he was signed, obviously, from de Graaf Schaap as like a, you know, up and coming replacement mm. for Schmeichel. And then when he actually returned there, he couldn't get a game. I know. It's, it's amazing what a spell on the bench can do to your confidence, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, some players obviously make a career out of being a second-choice keeper, but for Posme, he was certainly billed to be far more um, and and didn't get to achieve that. Given the context, it feels the word flop might not be the most appropriate for him, given the uh, sex scandal he got (laughs) embroiled in. But um, I certainly felt he was a good pick. You picked him literally for that reason alone, didn't you? Mainly for that joke, yeah. (laughs) 
Arthur, who is at left back in our Premier League transfer flops 11? So I've decided to choose a player who was mainly known for his time at centre back, but he was very versatile, so could certainly slot into this left back slot. Right. Winston Bogard. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great shout. That was one of the first names that sprung to mind. What a player. Well, actually, not for Chelsea. <laughs> he had a pretty successful career in the Netherlands. Um, initially, was Sparta Rotterdam. Actually, it's his versatility there that shows me left-back could be his position because he played as left-winger there, scoring 11 goals in his one season before he moved to Ajax and became the defensive stalwart that uh, made AC Milan by him a few seasons later. But he was very disappointing there. And then two seasons of fairly uninspiring football at Barcelona meant that Chelsea decided to give him a chance. They signed him as a 29-year-old on a four-year contract at 40 grand a week. When you look back, that is obscene. It's absolutely obscene. For context, the highest paid player in the Premier League at the time was Roy Keane, and he was on 52 grand a week. So that really puts Bogard's 40k in perspective, especially considering... You know, his career hadn't sparkled up to that mm. point. He'd got 20 caps for the Netherlands, but he hadn't impressed at, at either of his recent stints at AC Milan or Barca. Uh, and to add insult to injury, he moved to London to obviously join up with um, Gianluca Viali's Chelsea. Viali allegedly had no say in Bogard's arrival uh, and was actually fired a few days later. And when he was replaced by Claudio Ranieri, the new Italian had little faith in Bogard's abilities and wanted to sell him mere weeks after he'd signed that lucrative contract. So basically, Bogard was was put in a difficult situation. It would be next to impossible to find a team that would give him a contract comparable to the one he had at Chelsea. Frankly, I think he was pretty astounded at the salary that the club had agreed to pay him. He decided to stay and honour his contract to the letter. He appeared at training every single day. He was the model pro in many ways, ready to play, uh, but he was never really played. <laughs> of his contract, he said, why should I throw away 15 million euros when it's already mine? At the moment I signed the contract, it was in fact my money, my contract. He appeared 11 times during his four-year tenure, despite Chelsea just desperately trying to get rid of him. They demoted him to the reserve team, then the youth team. Again, lots of press criticism. And he responded saying, this world is about money. So when you're offered those millions, you take them. Few people will ever earn so many. I'm one of the few fortunates to do. I may be one of the worst buys in the history of the premiership, but I don't care. <laughs> and I, I have to say, I slightly respect that attitude because... I mean, Chelsea are the idiots for giving him that contract. And, yeah. you know, he, was, he signed the contract that they offered him and he, he fulfilled that contract. I you think know? you're right. I think, um, you know, if either of us, Arthur, were, were offered those sorts of millions to, to jump ship and go to another podcast, then, you know, I know we'd think long and hard of it, but I'm sure we would. I, I just, it's the fans I feel sorry for in this instance, you know, to, th to get excited about a big name player coming in or in Winston's case, someone who they felt might have an impact at the club. And then to see them play just 11 times and know they were earning those sorts of wages is so demoralising. So centre-back then? Yeah, we got two centre-backs today. It's a 4-4-2. Um, so I wanted a sort of more elegant um, ball-playing centre-back in there. Um, or at least someone who was billed to be. And that was Marcelino Elena. <laughs> he, um, he signed in 1999 for Newcastle, for those of you who, uh, for whom it doesn't ring a bell. Um, and it was a massive transfer fee, 5 million, uh, over 5 million, in fact, 5.8 million um, for the Spanish centre-back. And he was then an international. He was capped five times for Spain uh, when the Geordie snapped him up. It excited the Newcastle fans, um, but that soon faded away. He went on to make just 20 appearances for the Magpies in all competitions. Um, they had a weak backline already at the time, Newcastle. They were playing with the likes of Didier Domi and Alessandro Pistone. Um, and the hope was that Marcelino would, would come in and add a bit of class. 
Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. He picked up a groin strain on his debut uh, and was substituted at half time. Uh, and that really was the trend throughout his time um, at Newcastle. He kept getting injured, or at least they thought so. He was on big money, um, but he was considered a thief by many of the fans. Uh, he was paid about a million pounds a year, um, but he apparently suffered from injuries where the scans were inconclusive. Um, so there's a bit of a theory that Marcelino Elena was claiming to be injured just so that he didn't have to play in front oh. of the Newcastle fans that didn't particularly warm to him in his early games. Um, which is is shocking, really. Um, it earned him the name Marcelimpo. Um, but obviously that's unproven, so we, we can't say it for sure. The most noteworthy injury he had, though, which does add some evidence behind this claim, uh, he had a snapped finger tendon, which, you know, if you think of a big, bustly centre-back injury to the finger, probably strap that up and maybe carry on. Um, yeah. He was out for two months with that. <laughs> oh my gosh. So... Uh, as a footballer, are they allowed to wear kind of like a hard cast or something? But I don't you know. certainly think that they can play. I mean, obviously, a snapped tendon is going to be a very painful injury, but you would kind of think that they could they could plough on through that. You you would, but clearly for Marcelino Elena, it was a step too far. Again, he's a player who flattered to deceive in the Premier League and then plummeted really as far as the rest of his career went. Um, he'd see out his final few years in the Spanish Segunda division with Polideportivo Egido, who I must admit I haven't actually heard of, but certainly not a Spanish great, not a Puyot or a PK. Uh, Marcelino Elena will be a name that's um, not fondly remembered by Newcastle fans. Absolutely. I think in my research, I discovered that Newcastle seemed to be a bit of a bit of a serial offender when it came to transfer flops names like Albert Luque spring to mm. mind John Allen Boomsong <laughs> yes they hated him didn't they and he actually came quite hotly tipped yeah he did Marcelino you know when you sign a, a Spanish centre-back you're expecting style you're expecting you know a ball playing centre-back and by all accounts Marcelino very much failed to live up to that expectation <laughs> Who's going to partner Marcelino Elena at centre-back? So I've decided to go for the slightly amusingly named Raphael Scheidt. <laughs> <laughs> what a player. I've slightly, I've, I've stretched the definition of Premier League transfer flops as well by picking a player who signed for Celtic. So we're really going for the Scottish Premiership here. 44 caps for Gremio. Uh, and a season in Japan, um, that was the the CV of this 23-year-old Brazilian who, who was signed by John Barnes from, from Grêmio, as I say, in, in December 1999. He signed for £5 million on a four-and-a-half-year deal, rumoured to be worth 20 k a week. For context there, Celtic's record transfer was Al Berkovic at £5.75 uh, and even today, it's odds on Edward at just £9 million. So £5 million was a big deal for Celtic. Barnes admitted, seemingly unembarrassed, that he'd never seen him play live. He was signed based on a video of his finest moments, um, though bizarrely it later transpired that all had been harvested from matches in which Gremio had suffered heavy defeats. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the tape apparently had been tantalising enough to attract a gaggle of top Italian clubs, including AC Milan, uh, who surely never go for a defensive dud. So Celtic claimed a bit of a coup. Shite completely failed to make an impact. He was plagued by injury, found it hard to settle, started only one game in his first season against St. Johnston and was then left out on loan to Corinthians by new manager Martin O'Neill after just five appearances. Scheidt later admitted that following an unimpressive showing in a pre-season friendly, O'Neill had told him, I like footballers who are not like you. Further adding, I like footballers who play well. <laughs> the Guardian newspaper calls Scheidt the worst transfer in the history of soccer. 
Oh my goodness. Um, which I think, I think shows when a club like Celtic shell out that kind of money. In all, tr- in all honesty, in recent years, they have unearthed some absolute gems. Um, mm-hmm. Signed Victor Wanyama, they signed Virgil van Dijk, they signed Fraser Forster, all of whom went to Southampton. <laughs> a lot of money, so they, they, uh, they do tend to um, to get a bit of a profit in the transfer market. Shite's loan spell at Corinthians came to an end in 2002, and he still maintained hope of making it at Celtic. He said in an interview, I want this year to be known as the shite year. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's been 2020, hasn't it? So good. You know, the marketing department at Celtic put in a very, very strong effort to ditch his family name and call him Raphael, which apparently annoyed his father. Um, but the the rebranding effort did little to disguise that he just had no timing um, no speed uh, and apparently according to reports emanating from training he just had very little ball control as well which you you don't expect from a from a, a brazilian center back and then when he did return he no longer met uk work permit requirements oh, um so celtic were required to pay off the remainder of, of his contract so he cost maybe as much as four and a half million pounds in wages for 10 games. One of the interesting things about Shite is the fact that that work permit issue that meant Celtic had to pay off his contract came about, I think, largely as a result of he only got his work permit originally because he had three caps for Brazil in 1999, shortly before his transfer to Celtic. But the weird quirk here is that there are quite strong accusations that the game's um, were basically Brazilian players being selected for Brazil in return for sweeteners from their clubs wanting to sell them to European clubs for large transfer fees. Ooh. So obviously they get their work permit based on their international appearances, um, but they're only being given them in friendlies just to satisfy this. That is a spectacular story. I could imagine shite and shitty forming a fantastic <laughs> centre-back partnership somewhere. Yeah, really, really happy to welcome Shite into the team. Um, And I I would say the thing with him is sometimes you've got to take a punt and those punts pay off. There are flops like Shite, but there are others where managers will relish the opportunity to to see a, a player flourish. In the case of our right back, he was actually signing as a vastly experienced player at a very high level and still managed to be a Premier League transfer flop. Uh, and that's Francoise Grenet. <laughs> that does not ring a bell at all, Ben. Francoise Grenet. He actually only had six months in the Premier League, so oh. I can understand that. And it was in 2002. He was a first-team regular at Bordeaux. He was a title winner, a UEFA Cup runner-up, and he'd made 177 appearances in the French top flight. But he started to fall out of favour towards um, towards the beginning of the noughties. And he eventually signed for Premier League strugglers Derby County uh, in the January transfer window. It was £3 million, the fee. Um, Derby were battling relegation, so this was seen as a bit of a coup. Um, and Grenet believed that by making this move to the Premier League, he could break into the French national team. Uh, This was also backed up by the manager at Derby, Colin Todd, who said the only reason he is not part of the senior French squad is the fact that Lillian Chiram is in that position. Otherwise, he'd be there. So very highly rated Hmm. um, and coming over for a decent sum of money back in 2002. Um, It made him the most expensive Derby County footballer of all time. But it was later disclosed that it was actually 2.2 million by um, the chief executive. So everything I've just said in the last two minutes is a complete lie. Um, He received quite a lot of criticism during his time at Derby um, for aerial ineptitude, lacking heart, lacking positional awareness, an inability to make a challenge without fouling and being regularly embarrassed by wingers. So that's pretty much all of the bad things that could possibly be said about you um, as a Premier League right back. He made 18 appearances, um, but Derby were sadly relegated. Grenet couldn't face playing in the second tier of English football, particularly harbouring dreams of playing in the French national squad. So he left for Rennes, but he was less than successful and never did 
break into that international setup. Interestingly about Francois Grenet, he appeared for the Basque country um, as a substitute in a friendly against Uruguay. And so that was a bit of an obscure fact about him. Uh, And if you're intrigued, I did also find that on eBay, you can buy a Francoise Grenet Champions League sticker for £1.25. Such was his name in in French football. I felt like you might not know about Francoise Grenet, Arthur. So I thought I'd back up what I'd read online with some views of Derby fans on Twitter. Um, So thank you for helping us out there. Andy Buckley-Taylor said... Terrible player, unlike his fellow Frenchman, Yul Maweni. Uh, Rams Review Podcast said, not our finest signing, that's for sure. And Steve Bloomer's Washing said, Colin Todd suggested he was as good as Chiram. He definitely wasn't. <laughs> I think we can see that. Um, not a great career for Derby, uh, especially when you sign a player that has such great billing. I mean, to compare him to a legend like Chiram is is um, really setting him up for a fall. But again, like Postma, when he returned to France, he just he just didn't didn't achieve again. And I, no. I I wonder whether these spells of of lack of success in the Premier League just just like drain the talent out of these players. They return to their country of origin and just cannot perform. If we've inspired you so far, do get in touch at 11pods on Twitter. Be great to hear your Premier League transfer flops. Uh, Just to take a break from our team, um, we're big fans of the Football Clichés podcast here. Um, We've had Adam Hurry on one of our latest episodes. And taking a, a note out of their book, really, Arthur, I just became aware that when it comes to transfers and the transfer market, there are a series of cliched terms that get bandied about every single year. Um, and these are specifically terms about the type of player you are, you are signing or you think you are signing. Um, so I've got five here and I wanted your opinion of what they meant, um, how these words may have come about and uh, a player maybe we could discuss that that you think fits that bill. I wanted to start with uh, a fairly standard term we hear in the press, hot prospect. (laughs) It always struck me as a bit weird. I don't know where the whole hot thing has come from. Yeah, I I get prospect. Um, What what are your thoughts on that? Well, hot prospect, someone... Let me have a think about this, because there is nothing to... What? It is quite random when you think about it. It is completely random. What does the temperature of this prospect have to do with how how good they are? No, I'm not sure. Obviously, a hot prospect is someone you're expecting to be the next big thing. Yeah, Um, do they have to be young? I think they do. I think there's something inherent about a hot prospect that they they can't have already strutted their stuff on a big stage. Okay. They need to be ready to make an impact quite why it's hot prospect i've absolutely no idea no i wasn't sure i I, I guess it's something about setting a light they're about to set the world alight that's that's the closest i could get yeah i think there's something about the jargon of football that often you have absolutely no idea why you're saying certain things you just say them because other people say them and no one quite knows why you do no I mean, hot prospect. The name that sprung to mind for some reason was Giles Barnes. Yes, when he came through at Derby. I kind of felt hot prospect. That Derby's was him. youngest ever player. Yeah, any youth prospect that bursts onto the scenes, yeah. uh, I would say you could you could categorise as a hot prospect. Okay, that's that's a good start. And we're going to go to the opposite end of the market now and talk about veteran. Okay, a veteran. I think needs to be. At least thirty-two. I yeah, would say. yeah. Thirty, yeah, I think okay. you're still you're still in the prime of your career. Thirty-two, mm. you're sort of approaching that that stage where you've got a lot of experience under your belt. You've probably got to. In fact, I don't think there's anything to say that you you couldn't have been a one club man. Um, no, I think you have to have been good. Yes. I don't think you can be. You can have had a really dodgy career and then become a veteran. I think you. I think you can be rubbish. Do you think? Yes. Okay. As long as you've got experience, as long as you've played lots of matches 
and you picked up experiences in those games yeah you could be a veteran of of awful experiences just as long as you've got a lot of them okay so you think shite could have been a veteran Raphael shite could have been a veteran uh okay. maybe not because i'm not sure he had enough game time in his career yeah okay game maybe, time's important should we say as well at least 350 career appearances yeah maybe i was wondering actually if it had to be a striker when i think veteran i always think of like a veteran striker your jermaine defoe your christophe dugary i don't i don't really think of like a veteran left back that's that's a good point i think perhaps it's because the strikers are the ones who are scoring goals who are constantly in our faces we're seeing them so they're referred to more so okay. the veteran Jermaine Defoe would be referred to much more than the veteran Ashley Cole. Mm. Um, so, okay, that's an interesting one. That is. Uh, what, what about a marquee signing? Where, where has the marquee come from and why has it been erected? I have this vision of a certain signing that's mm. so good that you erect a marquee around him and you invite people in to spectate. Like uh, a garden party. Pretty much like a garden party. Okay. Uh, they're on they're on show. They are very much attracting public attention. Um, mm. You can have erected a marquee to attract attention from other clubs to say, look at who we're signing. Look at how much money we right. have. Right, okay. So it's all about the show. Can you erect multiple marquees in one transfer window or can there only be one marquee? I think you can. Um, when it comes to Real Madrid and the Galacticos, I would say all of the Galacticos would have had their separate marquees. You couldn't just put them in all in the same marquee, you know. Okay. Uh, such big name players. They, they have such gravitas uh, around mm. them that, that really they wouldn't, they wouldn't put up with sharing a marquee, would they? No. I guess to continue this slightly pointless metaphor, you can't extend the marquee's size, can you? You have to have multiple marquees. So yeah. each player has their own marquee. It, I, I guess, you know, if you're having a, a marquee in the garden and you don't have a big garden, uh, mm. you've still got a marquee maybe. But someone yeah. with a, a country, a sprawling country estate and has an enormous marquee in this. I mean, there's not much to separate these two marquees, even no, though that is very true. different sizes. Yeah. No, you make an astute point. And um, who is an example of a marquee signing? Perhaps... A club that doesn't necessarily spend an awful lot of money and mm. then suddenly they've spent a lot of money on one player. Right. That would categorize one. So you're Danny Osvaldo's. Yeah, something. that's a good, that's um, a good a example. A lot of money for, for a club that doesn't really spend lavishly. I like that. That's a good example. That's really helped. Um, what about a journeyman? journeyman I, I guess i think we know what a journeyman is a journeyman is someone who who goes to multiple clubs lots of clubs throughout their career but how many clubs do you have to play for before you become a journeyman there must be a cutoff point surely i think there would be uh probably four or five at least is that is that it maybe oh, not. i was thinking more like eight or nine do you think there's something to be said for the amount of clubs in the same league? So if you've if yeah. you played for four different clubs in the Premier League, are you a Premier League journeyman? That's really interesting, actually. I think that's a good point. So perhaps or if you were... Or potentially mm. spanning multiple leagues. So you're Rob Earnshaws, who's, who, who played in lots of different leagues and scored in different leagues. Yeah. Um, you're, you're a football league journeyman uh, in many ways. You're Ricky Lamberts, mm. you're Grant Holtz. Um, those those are the sort of players I'm, I'm thinking when I when I think of journeyman. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I agree with you. I mean, I know Marcus Bent, for example, he played for 18 clubs, and I think he's a good example because every time he signed for another club, you felt like he was kind of getting signed because he'd been there and done it somewhere else, but not necessarily because of his specific qualities. It was almost yeah. the fact that he was adaptable to lots of different places. Yeah. Do you think a player takes offence from being called a journeyman or do you think it's a nod to their experience and their, you know, knowledge of the game? I, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say, I would say being a journeyman is is not necessarily a good thing because I don't think you endear yourself to a particular fan base if you're a journeyman. Do you think you can equate it to, um, and I'll throw another term back at you, Ben. Yeah. Mercenary. Mercenary. Oh, that's interesting. See, I think mercenary is a bit more negative than journeyman. Yeah. 
yeah um so i'd rather be a journeyman than a mercenary but i think they have similar context interesting um there's one more i've got for you before we move on to the midfield and that's wonder kid <laughs> now wonder kid's interesting obviously kid i guess uh, appeals to to someone who's young wonder and a sense of excitement about them and their prospects but do you feel like there has to be a significant risk of failure because it we often talk about wonder kids that have gone on to flop i don't think there necessarily has to be a risk of failure obviously i mean breaking down the term as a wonder kid you have to obviously be under 18 Uh, you have to still be a child (laughs) um and they need to be, I mean, this isn't just any hot prospect. Um, they need to be someone who's who's destined to become one of the very best. Okay. You hear stories about the likes of Cherno Samba, who burst onto the scene very much as a wonder kid, big things expected and, and tanked. I like that. Have you got an example of a wonder kid at the moment? No. <laughs> oh, thanks, Arthur. Um, yeah, get in touch with us at 11pod. That's the word and not the number um, with your suggested wonder kids. Let's move on to the midfield for the Premier League transfer flops 11. I think if Winston Bogard is going to be playing at left back, uh, we need a left midfielder who's going to do the bulk of the attacking work. Who's that going to be? Ben, if I was to say Tiago Manuel Diaz Correa, would you know who that is? No. Does it help if I say Bebe? Oh, Bebe. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, that's fantastic news that he's made one of the 11s. He, I mean, he had to be included, um, especially in this team. Uh, after just a single season in the Portuguese third division, Man United signed him for £7.92 million pounds, um, from Vitoria Guimarães. Allegedly, he was signed by Sir Alex Ferguson without being seen. Uh, another one similar to Shite. Former assistant Carlos Queiroz had recommended Bebe to him. And surprisingly, the legendary Man United manager okayed the signing. I think he was very keen to not be gazumped by Real Madrid and Benfica, who were both apparently interested. I mean, in all honesty, this is a Hollywood film in the making. He grew up in a Lisbon homeless shelter uh, and he played for the CAIS homeless organisation at the 2009 European Street Football Festival. Wow. Uh, and he scored 40 goals in six games <laughs> at the tournament. <laughs> which is just, I mean, it's just staggering. Um, it so, is. I mean, it's not that surprising that Kirosh thought he was the next big thing. Prior to his signing for Man U, He'd only just moved out of a homeless shelter on the outskirts of Lisbon, uh, and he went from earning £300 a week to £17 grand a week at Old Trafford, and that reportedly had a £500,000 signing on fee as well. Um, so Goodness. he went from nothing to a huge, huge signing. Man, yeah, I mean, I remember Bebe, and I remember at the time thinking it seemed unbelievably risky. I, I think there was probably a feeling that even if he didn't make it at United, he was the sort of player that might go out on loan somewhere lower down in the Premier League, forge a bit of a career for himself. But we just never, ever got to see him. Um, yeah. So I, I think you're quite right to point that out as one of Sir Alex's few transfer flops. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, the ridicule didn't take too long to rain down on Ferguson. Mm. (laughs) Um, His first appearance was as a substitute uh, coming on for Owen Hargreaves after just 10 minutes against Wolves. And he was later subbed off in the second half after a poor display. It was quite clear he wasn't up to the task. He was quick, skillful and physical, but I think his lack of formal footballing education came to the fore. He struggled tactically and without the ball. I remember seeing clips of him playing for the reserve team and seeing just quite how bad his crossing was. He just didn't really have a chance to look out of place in the Premier League because in his four years there, he played just seven times. So he didn't get his game time. um, But when he did play, he certainly did look out of place. He did score two goals in that period, by the way. Seven seven games, two goals. That's not actually a bad ratio. So fair play to him. He wasn't happy at United, though. He said, every day I called my agent to ask him to get me out. He did, though, take some responsibility for his failings at Man U. 
he said, I never took Man United seriously. I'm here, I'm doing well, and I don't have to try hard every day. So he'd sort of settled. He'd got his big transfer on a very, very comfortable pay packet. And he thought it was done, job done. Work didn't have to continue. After a series of loans, he signed permanently for Benfica. But unfortunately, it didn't work out there for him either. So he went on another succession of loans, uh, finally to Rio Vallecano. Um, at the latter, he showed his ability in La Liga and he actually um, played fairly well. And he's now signed permanently for Rio. They're a bit of a yo-yo club in Spain. They got promoted last season, so they'll be lining up in La Liga this season. And I'm pleased to see that he he finally seems to be settled, albeit at a, at a lower-end La Liga team that might be more his level than Champions of England. But, you know, I, I obviously, given his humble past, you kind of want to see a player like that succeed and thrive. And I did feel a bit bad for him at United. He was ridiculed. And, and I'm pleased to see that he's finally found a home. And he's scoring some pretty good goals at Rio as well. Um, so, yeah, perhaps it's not all so bad for Bebe. He's still, <laughs> he's still not, not old. So I think he's capable of more. Well, he, he might make his way back to United. Who, uh, who knows? <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Yeah. Uh, alongside him... If you think a top side has signed a player that was in the under-19 and under-21 Euros team of the tournament, you'd think it was a pretty astute piece of business. But when Liverpool signed Alberto Aquilani um, for £20 in 2009, I think it had to go down as a Premier League transfer flop. Uh, He'd only played 28 times. He'd scored two goals for Liverpool. Um, So not a great return. He was a versatile playmaker in terms of his playing style. He could play a bit deeper, but was more prominent in an attacking position, or he played as a number 10 under Cesare Prandelli for his country. He could play box to box. He had decent energy and he had um, sparks of creativity in his locker. But what he wasn't was a like-for-like replacement for Xabi Alonso, um, who had moved on, and Rafa Benitez was trying to replace him with Aquilani in that deeper role alongside Gerard. It was a really risky signing, though, because Aquilani was always played with injuries throughout his career. Um, and unfortunately, that was one of the things that set him back at Anfield. He got a standing ovation from the cop. He was subbed on for his first league start on Boxing Day, was named Man of the Match against Portsmouth. Um, And he was absolutely superb in a game against Atletico Madrid in the Europa League. But really, he played very few times and most of his runouts were sub appearances against relegation candidates in the Premier League. Um, There were plenty of fans clamouring for him to play because it wasn't a particularly successful era era for Liverpool. But Aquilali was flaky in terms of his fitness um, and so never really was able to step up. He eventually left for Fiorentina, where he'd do okay uh, and keep his spot in the Italian national team. Um, But Liverpool never really got a decent fee for him. So £20 million was pretty much down the drain on Aquilani. Carragher once told The Athletic um, it was just a complete and utter mess. It was a panic signing. Um, Xabi was going and there was a sense of we have to get someone in. But we signed someone who hadn't played for months and was months away from being fit again. So poor research really led to this transfer flop. I don't think by any means Aquilani was a poor player. Uh, He showed that during his times at Serie A. Um, But certainly when you're paying that sort of money, um, I think he has to go down as one of the Premier League's transfer disasters of recent times. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm very pleased, Ben, that you picked Alberto. I think he's thoroughly deserving of a a position in this team. Um, I think potentially his failings at Liverpool were down to them signing the wrong type of player for uh, yeah yeah you know, to, to replace Javi Alonso. Obviously, I think Alberto Aquilani could play deep lying playmaker, but I, I saw him more as a advanced attacking midfielder, as sort of a, a playmaker at the other end of the pitch, um, scoring goals. I think at Fiorentina, he did score some goals. And I think that is his role. Obviously, signing an unfit player, Um, who, when he did play, just didn't fit into that role, meant that he was kind of destined to fail, really, there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's what most Liverpool fans would say. They don't look back at the Aquilani signing and have any sort of resentment towards the player themselves. I think they just feel 
um, that, you know, whoever was making the decisions at that point, be it Benitez or his backroom staff, got it wrong and 20 million went down the drain. He's going to have to play that slightly defensive midfield role when you find out who he's playing alongside. Okay. Because I've picked very much an attacking midfield player. I've gone for Ricky Alvarez. Yeah, yeah. This is a great story. I can't wait for you to tell this one. Honestly, he's just... This this is it's scarcely believable what Sunderland got themselves into, and if if that Sunderland Amazon Prime documentary had had, had this story, it would have mm. it would have had millions of views. It probably did already. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he started his career with Velez Sarsfield in Argentina. Before in 2011, he started to receive significant praise from fans and media alike for his league and Copper Libertadores performances. He showed versatility by playing in almost every position across midfield. But as I say, it's the attacking midfield role that I'd like to slot him into. He got his big move to Europe, um, moving to Inter Milan in July 2011 for 11.75 million euros. He didn't set the world alight, but he did play 90 times over three seasons and he scored 14 goals in the process. During these three years, he also uh, nine caps for Argentina. So it was a pretty exciting signing for Sunderland when they got him on loan in the 2014 campaign. Mm. Um, he signed on loan for £900,000, but the loan had a clause obligating Sunderland to buy Alvarez at the end of the season, subject to two conditions. They stayed in the Premier League and an injury history with his left knee didn't prevent Alvarez from passing a medical he played just 13 games after suffering an injury to his right knee, which had undergone microfracture surgery years earlier. <laughs> after staying up, Sunderland tried to get out of their obligation to buy, claiming that the right knee injury had been a product of the left knee troubles acknowledged in the original agreement. <laughs> but this is where it gets bad. Sunderland's attempt to get out of the agreement failed. At the same time, to reinforce their standing, the club didn't offer Alvarez a contract, which then allowed him to sign for Sampdoria on a free transfer. So essentially, Sunderland paid £9.5 million <laughs> for a player who then immediately left the club. For so, nothing. It was amazing. They paid £9.5 million and he never played. Yeah, it's just awful. I mean, oh. remarkably, it gets worse. <laughs> just... I don't understand how Newcastle and Sunderland manage this so spectacularly. It's just awful. Um, Sunderland lost their claim that Inter should have repaid much of Alvarez's loan fee and wages as a result of the injury. Velez Sarsfield then sued Sunderland for €362,000 in solidarity payments for the development of his career. And then Alvarez himself appeared to the Court of Arbitration for Sport over the amount awarded for lost earnings for the first half of the 2015-16 season, whilst his contract was under dispute. Uh, and so the courts ordered Sunderland to pay Alvarez a further £4.7 million. <laughs> oh, no. Um, they tried to sue their former club doctor to recoup the earnings, but they failed um, I think they just wanted to put the whole saga to bed, to be honest. It just cost them so much money. It's dreadful. Um, but it's disappointing because he was a talented player. He was just, you know, completely and utterly crocked by injury. And they just didn't do their paperwork. <laughs> it is shocking. And I do feel for the fans in the sense that, you know, you look at where Sunderland are now in terms of their financial state. That's 14 million just blown on, on a player that's managed to have no impact on their, their season whatsoever. Um, exactly. A horrible that was the season. Ben, that was the season as well that they signed Jack Rodwell, which obviously... Oh, was... no. Just to <laughs> add insult to injury. Exactly. Not a good one. So who's on the right, then? On the right side of the midfield, we've got an Algerian international, Arthur. Um, <laughs> Kamel Gilas. Okay. <laughs> Certainly rings a bell. Tell yes. He um he played for Hull City in the Premier League. Um he signed for two million pounds in two thousand and nine, having had pretty decent spells at Cannes in France, uh Vittoria Guamarech in Portugal, and Celta Vigo in Spain. 
Um, but two of those teams were not playing in the top flight of, um, of their respective leagues. So Bleacher Report called this as a potential dodgy signing. They said Phil Brown is taking a massive gamble purchasing Gilas. Apart from his time at Vittoria, he's never experienced top flight football. And even that was in one of Europe's minor leagues. Questions exist over his speed and technical ability, which would be exposed on a weekly basis in the Premier League. So really, this transfer was kind of doomed before it had happened. Um, but Gilas set about trying to prove them wrong. Um, on his debut, he scored a goal in a 1-0 win for Hull over Bolton Wanderers. Um, it was a through ball from another transfer flop, Josie Altidore, uh, and he managed to, to, to beat the goalkeeper. But sadly, this would prove to be Kamel Gilas's only goal for the club. Uh, he, he was poor, frankly. He looked off the pace and he was bereft of ideas on the right flank. And though he showed flashes of brilliance, there was rarely any end product to his game. Uh, he couldn't cope with the pace of the Premier League and it didn't appear to be two million well spent. Um, following that, he had unfruitful spells at Rem and Charleroi um, before retiring pretty young at just 30 years old. Um, so Kamel Gilas isn't a name that I imagine Hull City fans will remember particularly fondly. The, one of the reasons, actually, I found this interesting is that he had a brother, Kamel Gilas, still does, called Nabil Gilas, who at a very similar time signed for Porto for a fee of three million pounds. Uh, he had a buyout clause at the time of 30 million. However, he has also proven to be a fairly high profile transfer flop. Um, they play in very similar positions, very similar roles. Um, and at pretty much the same point in their career, both got the big money move and failed to make anything of it. So the Gilas brothers, um, if you like, on the right side, but I'll go for Camel for the Premier League 11. Very good. I think there must be something in the water at Vittoria Guimaraes because that was where Bebe came from as well. Yeah. So players, yeah. You know, players setting the field alight in the lower divisions of Portugal. I think at the time when Gilas signed for Hull City, Vittoria were in a bit of a higher division. They were in mm. the third division when um, Bebe signed for Man U. So perhaps they're a very pro progressive side because in his two seasons with them they went from the second to the first divisions so clearly a, a club on the rise Vittoria Gamarish. you say that Arthur though as if most fans are clamoring for Kamel Gilas and Bebe on their wings um I don't know about you but it's not really exciting me well it's excited me hence we've selected them for the 11 we wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't want to bore our listeners <laughs> Onto Gilas here, it's Kamel Gilas! Explosive! Leading the line, uh, we have two strikers today and one is up for grabs. We've got some nice contributions from friends of the show. Uh, Arthur, you're picking the strike partner. So I've gone for Serhi Rebrov. Mm, 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 mm. Nice mug of coffee there, man. Yeah, I really drank at the wrong time there. <laughs> My reaction would have been pretty much the same. Very good to hear. Sir, he was one half of the most prolific striking partnership ever in Europe. Actually, to call it the most prolific, but I think it's one of the most prolific. Oh, okay. I'm not going to quite claim that. Um, alongside Andriy Shevchenko, the 1996-97 season saw him net 20 times in just 35 games, and the partnership flourished. They also began to display their form in European competition. They reached the Champions League semi-finals in 1999, this is, of course, Dinamo Kiev. And in the following season, 36 games brought 29 goals domestically for Rebrov. Uh, and he added a further eight in 14 European games. Alongside Shevchenko, they were such a fearsome strike partnership. And that form saw the breakup of said partnership as Silvio Berlusconi broke the AC Milan transfer record and splashed out 25 million quid um, to take Shevchenko to the San Siro where he would become a club legend and one of the top strikers on the continent, scoring 172 goals in seven seasons. So Tottenham thought, why not try and sign the other half of this strike partnership? So when they smashed their transfer record, um, which was at the time 6 million for Les Ferdinand, to sign Rebrov 
for 11 million pounds. They thought they were getting a gem. That's a lot. It's a lot of money. He's, I think he struggles from the fact that he's just constantly compared to Sheva. Many Ukrainian journalists at the time saw him as the better player, actually. His first season in England was less than stellar. He scored nine goals in 29 games. But it was nothing, you know, I mean, it wasn't disastrous. There was a bit of a platform to build on. It certainly wasn't great when you compared it to Shevchenko's first season in Serie A when he scored 29 goals in 43 games. But, you know, it wasn't a bad start. But his integration was hardly helped when the manager who bought him to the club, George Graham, was dismissed um, in March 2001, less than 12 months after the Ukrainian had joined. And his replacement, Glenn Hoddle, was was less than enamoured with the idea of playing Rebrov. So his first team opportunities dried up. Teddy Sheringham was brought in on a free and Rebrov became the fifth choice striker. And I just think he... He struggled with that bigger stage. He was used to being a big fish in a very small pond. I think domestically, Ukrainian football traditionally has two teams who thrive. It's Shakhtar Donetsk and Dinamo Kiev. And he was playing for one of these teams. He was playing for the team that that won the title most seasons. And he was banging in the goals. And he signed for Tottenham, who who were a reasonable side in England. But at the time, they were sort of very much mid-table and he just couldn't live up to the billing. After he left Spurs, he had a couple of seasons in the Turkish league with Fenerbahce. Um, he only scored four goals in 38 games. Um, so perhaps that spark that enabled him to thrive in the slightly smaller leagues had just disappeared. He finally left for West Ham, where he also failed, having scored 10 goals in 60 games for Spurs. And I think perhaps a sign of the deteriorate, deterioration after that first season was that only one of those 10 strikes came in the last 30 games that he played for Spurs. Oh, wow. Um, It's labelled him as one of the worst acquisitions in Premier League transfer history. And so I thought, whether fair or not, those figures are a pretty damning indictment of his abilities. Yeah, I think that is a fair shout. I think also because there was such excitement around his signing and it never really lived up to expectations. By no means the worst striker that's ever played in the Premier League, but still a transfer flop, nevertheless. Now, the second striker in our team is up for grabs. Let's hear from Alan Gernon now. Um, Alan has written a fantastic book called The Transfer Market, The Inside Stories. So he is very much in the know about this. Savio Nezareco. Savio who? Exactly. He's that obscure, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing his surname correctly. Anyway, the Germany under-19 striker scored just three times in three seasons at Brescia before an eyebrow-raising £9 million move to West Ham in January 2009. The Ugandan-born player started just one Premier League game before being shipped back to Italy at a huge loss to the Hammers. He subsequently failed to make an impact at a further dozen clubs, at least, and is now plying his trade in the ninth tier of German football, having been arrested by Thai police in 2012 on an alleged false kidnap claim. West Ham promised an investigation into Gianfranco Zola's disastrous signing, but it never materialised, much like Nezareco's promise. Yeah, I think Savio is a very, very good shout for this. Um, a few high-profile transfer flops at West Ham, but... I think it became very apparent early doors that the the man had a lot of pace, but not much else. There's going to be two more nominations, one from Arthur, one from myself. Uh, Arthur, who are you throwing into the mix? Transfer deadline day, January 2014, and Fulham fans were on edge. (laughs) (laughs) Big build up. Fulham were embroiled in a relegation battle and they needed... A marquee signing, Ben. Oh, not another marquee. New manager, Renee, was delighted to unveil Kostas Mitroglou. Oh, God, yeah. He was was dreadful, wasn't he? He really was. Signed for £13.5 million from Olympiakos. He appeared to be the quality striker that they needed. He'd scored 30 goals in his 33 prior appearances for Olympiakos. And he'd done it on the bigger stage as well. He'd bagged a hat-trick in the Champions League. He'd scored eight goals for Greece and was a mainstay in the national side. He was even nicknamed Mitra Goal, which is a pretty good, you know, encouraging 
encouraging sign, I think. But fitness issues meant that Mitroglou failed to feature at all until February the 22nd, which isn't ideal when you consider he was signed to make an impact in the relegation battle. During a crucial away match against West Brom, he made his debut. Uh, and by that time, René Merlinstein had been sacked and replaced by Felix Magat. It was Magat's first match in charge. And while Mitroglou sat on the bench, Fulham went 1-0 up. And I've got a little little quote here from Max Cohen, who's from Cottagers Confidential, which is a Fulham fan site. And he describes Mitroglou's debut. He says, Hugo Rodiega made way for Mitroglou with 61 minutes gone. And almost instantaneously, the tide turned. The hard pressing of Rodiega up front vanished, replaced by Mitroglou's laborious plodding strides. West Brom poured attack after attack upon our defence and four minutes before full time, they made the pressure pay. To throw away the lead yet again was sickening. The big money man had looked anonymous, tired and very far from fully fit. It was an abysmal debut from Mitroglou. And that's damning. That is damning. He played only three games for Fulham, scoring no goals and Fulham got relegated. <laughs> it Gosh. was quite clearly a panic signing sanctioned out of sheer desperation. Um, he was riddled with injuries and woefully unfit when he signed for Fulham. And I think it's all the more of a kick in the teeth for Fulham that he would score 52 goals in 84 games across the next three seasons for Olympiacos on loan and then at Benfica, where he would sign permanently at a £7 million loss for Fulham. Uh, yeah, I just think that is a horrific flop. signing, isn't it? That is bad. That is bad. Yeah, because Metropoli was scoring at, at European level. So that's a shocker. That is a shocker. Sorry, Fulham fans. He's uh, he's in the vote. Uh, and he'll be joined finally by a player who was capped and scored for Brazil, um, but a flop on side. It was Afonso Alves. Yes, great pick, Ben. I almost yeah. want to vote for him myself. Well, you can. Uh, at 11 pod, the word, not the number. He enjoyed unbelievable form uh, in Sweden in his early days, Afonso Alves. But perhaps the, the biggest achievement of his career uh, was his first season at Heronvein in the Dutch League. Uh, he scored 34 goals in 31 games, wow. which is a club record. So that's the top flight of Dutch football. And he outscored his number of appearances. Um, he's the third Brazilian to become top scorer in the Dutch first division. Um, only Romario and Ronaldo had managed that. So some esteemed company. And that meant that he attracted interest from some of the, the top leagues in Europe, um, particularly Middlesbrough, who eventually signed him for 12.5 million, thinking he would be the next big thing. Um, for context, other signings um, on that deadline day included Gilberto to Spurs, Felipe Caicedo to Man City. Um, so it didn't seem like the worst deal by any stretch, the fact that they brought in this Brazilian poacher. But unfortunately, Gareth Southgate would have to offload pretty much Borough's only creative outlet, which was Fabio Rockenbach. So um, the main supply line into Afonso Alves was suddenly coming from Gary O'Neill, which... Um, made life rather difficult for the Brazilian and uh, his service was not exactly exemplary. He had to wait four months before his first goal uh, and he ended up being a bit part player playing in the FA Cup, coming off the bench. They gave him plenty of opportunity, but his scoring seemed to have gone completely out the window by the time he arrived in the UK. Um, he looked a class apart when against poor defenders and he did actually manage to score four goals in one game. Um, in the Premier League, but he was toothless against the top teams and seemed dreadfully exposed, playing out the remainder of his career in the Middle East. No, I, not good. I think I think it's a bit of a lottery when you sign one of the top scorers in the Eredivisie, because for every Luis Suarez, who was, of course, a massive success at Liverpool, there's your Matea Kejmans and uh, yeah, that yeah. kind of player. So. As an aside, I would encourage all listeners to please check out the Hair and Vein match kit because I think it's one of the best kits in football. It is lovely, odd. isn't it? It's very odd. It's got like those little red kind of flowery things. Or like They're kind red. of hearts. Are they I, hearts? I'm sure. it's, but it's like red hearts on a blue and white striped top. Ah. So it looks quite striking. I think I'm going to get one myself. Great. 
It's Alves. It's fantastic. His first goal of the season. And it doubles the punishment for Stoke City. Andy Fai sent off from the free kick. Brazilian perfection. So on the bench, there were a few players that I was loath to leave out, but I had to. First up, Seth Johnson. Yeah. For Leeds. Allegedly, he arrived for his negotiations with Leeds chairman Peter Risdale, hoping to come away with a £13,000 a week deal. And Risdale's initial offer was 30 grand. And when Johnson gasped, Risdale misconstrued the sentiment and upped his offer to 37,000 a week. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And I thought also a very, very current calamity signing would probably be Roberto, the West Ham keeper. Yes. Signed on a free, but made that look expensive. Yeah. Spectacularly bad. Um, The one I was toying with was um, Pear Kroldrup, the ex-Everton centre-back. I wanted to put him in, but the more I read about him, the more I realised that there just wasn't a story there. He just wasn't very good. And they, for some reason, decided to take a punt on him. So, um, yeah, I think Pear Kroldrup would make the bench. Absolutely. Do you want to run us through the team, Arthur? So in goal, we have Postma. At the back, we have Bogard, Scheidt, Marcelino Elena and Grené. In midfield, we have Aquilani and Ricky Alvarez. On the left, we have Bebe. On the right, we have Kamel Gillas. And up front, we have Serhi Rebrov, accompanied by your choice, the up for grabs position today. Great. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.